you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, the fifth book of the New Testament and the 15th chapter. Just a heads up, since the structure of the sermon is different than what you might be used to, usually there's a big idea right at the front. We're going to build to our big idea, so if you don't hear one at the beginning, it's coming, I promise. And uh, I'm going to try to paint a picture for a good chunk of the sermon to help us see what's going on here in this chapter. Uh, we began to see last week in Acts 15 that this describes what might be called the first church council. Uh, it was a gathering in Jerusalem that sought to settle some questions surrounding the increasing number of Gentiles who were trusting in Jesus. And in particular, there was the question of whether or not these non-Jewish believers needed to keep the uniquely Jewish laws of the Old Testament. In the first five verses of chapter 15, we find that there are some men who came from the church in, Anti uh, in Jerusalem to Antioch. They, they came from Judea, and they were teaching that. They were teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And Paul and Barnabas opposed them, but then they decide that this discussion needs a wider audience, so they move to Jerusalem. And so pick up the story with me in Jerusalem in Acts 15, and I'm going to read verses 16, or verse 6 through 21. Acts 15, beginning in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The divide between Jews and and Gentiles in the early church, and the struggle to see these two groups united through a common faith in Jesus is a pervasive theme throughout 
the old, th throughout the, the New Testament. And yet it is something that we here in 2019 in Louisville, Kentucky, have a lot of trouble understanding, which mean that, means that it's going to take some effort to understand the vital importance of this gathering in Jerusalem that happened in church history and the relevance that it has for our lives today. But I believe that it's worth the effort because I think Acts 15 in some ways is a skeleton key that opens up a lot of doors in the New Testament for us. And so I want us to slow down and really think about what was happening here in the early church so that it helps us to understand how God works in the world and, and what he's doing in the New Testament. So in an attempt to understand this situation, I want to introduce you to a hypothetical man that we're going to call, we're going to give him a good Hebrew name, Asher. Okay, like one of the 12 tribes. So here's, here's Asher. Asher grew up in Jerusalem. Uh, he was the child of devout Jewish parents. And because of that, he was circumcised on the eighth day, just as the law commanded, and as Abraham had been commanded back in Genesis 17. Uh, Asher also attended the services at the temple for as long as he could remember, and his entire life was built around the rhythm of the Sabbath and of the Jewish feast days, just like your life and my life might be built around Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and summer vacation. Beyond just observing the, the days, the special days and the festivals, though, Asher's life was also dictated by some laws, especially the kosher food laws. He and his family could only eat food that met the specifications laid out in the law. And so the law had bearing on his everyday life on what foods he was allowed to eat. So they could say yes to beef, but no to pork. They could say yes to salmon, but no to shrimp. For Asher and his family, all of these, these laws and these festivals, they weren't arbitrary, they weren't random, but they were ways for, for them to celebrate the past faithfulness of God to the Jewish people and a way to look forward to God's redemption that was, that was coming for them. The laws were the God-ordained ways for his chosen people to please him and to represent him and image him in the world. And while they were sometimes difficult to, to follow, they were also important to this family and to all Jewish families. Well, Asher grew up and he had a family of his own, and they too sought to keep the law. He kept all the, the, the kosher food laws. His sons were circumcised. His whole family went to the temple on the Sabbath, and they went to the temple on the feast days. But on a certain feast day, on the, the day of Pentecost, Asher was walking around, and he heard Peter and some others causing a ruckus in the streets of Jerusalem. And eventually he heard Peter proclaiming that, that a man named Jesus, who had recently been, been killed by the religious authority, had risen from the dead, and that this guy was the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made about sending a Messiah, a, a savior who would restore the, the kingdom of David, a prophet and a priest like Moses, but even greater. And by God's grace and through his spirit, Asher believed. And he was added to this ever-growing number of Jewish people in Jerusalem who were proclaiming that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the savior of the, that the Jewish people had been waiting for. Now, let me ask you some questions about Asher. Now that Asher has trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, will he stop attending temple services? Probably not right away. Eventually, the, the gathering of Jesus' followers would be the place where he found his greatest encouragement. But even the, the apostles early on still went to the temple for the different prayer times. Will Asher start to break the kosher food laws? Almost certainly not. 
will he expect his grandchildren to be circumcised? Of course he will. Will he ignore the law of Moses and forsake all of the feast days that he has practiced since he can even remember, before he can even remember? I imagine not. That would be like you stopping to celebrate, no longer celebrating Christmas or some other holiday that you love. And I imagine that all those in Jerusalem in his new family of faith also didn't make many, of, many changes to those practices because they were part of their, their life. And because remember, Jesus was Jewish, both eth- ethnically and in his practices. And if the promised savior for the Jewish people had come, then why would people stop being Jewish in their practices? What would keep them from finding Christ, even in these past traditions? And so we can imagine this early church in Jerusalem, this brand new church full of people like Asher. We might envision people that are clinging tightly to Jesus as Lord and Messiah, but they're also holding on to the teachings of the Old Testament and the practices that they had grown up with. Now, that's Asher. I want you to leave Asher in Jerusalem for a minute, and I want you to travel with me now to Antioch, and we're going to find another hypothetical man, and we're going to call him Alex. Alex and Asher were actually born on the exact same day in the same year, which is really astounding, except for the fact that I'm just making this up, and so I can have them do whatever I want. So they were born on the exact same day. Actually, they were born at the same time. It's amazing. Uh, But Alex was not born in Jerusalem. Alex was born in Antioch to Gentile parents, and he grew up knowing who the Jewish people were, but not having a lot of interaction with them, and always wondering why they kept all these food laws and didn't eat what he liked, and and why they only worshipped one God. Because you see, for, for Asher, his, his family, they worshipped this whole pantheon of Greek gods. And his life was, was oriented around the festivals of all the different Greek gods. And that was the calendar that, that formed the rhythm of his life. Unlike Asher, circumcision wasn't anything that his family even gave any thought to. And as far as food goes, he, he ate what he liked. And he really liked all the seafood that came from the Mediterranean Sea. That was his favorite thing. Well, one day Alex was walking through Antioch with a basket full of seafood, taking it home for dinner, and he heard some people talking about forgiveness of sins in the name of a man called Jesus. And to make a long story short, Alex believed. He repented of his sins. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he went home and he told his wife and his kids the good news, and they all believed too. And then they had this huge pot of Mediterranean seafood stew to celebrate their new birth in Christ. Some questions about Alex then, okay? Is Alex going to stop worshiping in the temples of the false gods? It may take some time actually, but yes, he will. He will see the sinfulness of his former idolatry. He will see the truth of the exclusivity of Jesus as Lord. But does that mean he's going to start going to the local synagogue? Probably not. I I imagine that he is going to gather with the other Jesus followers in Antioch, who maybe even at this time are already starting to meet on Sundays to commemorate the Lord's resurrection. Is Alex going to stop eating seafood? Or is he going to stop eating certain meats from the marketplace? Or is he going to make sure that he and his sons are circumcised? I don't think Alex is going to do any of that stuff. He's not going to start or stop any of those practices. That is, unless someone tells him that he has to. 
Asher and Alex are not perfectly described, okay? I'm not a historian in first century uh, Antioch or Jerusalem. But what I hope they help you see is that how hard it was for the early church to bring together Jewish and Gentile believers, to bring Asher's and Alex's together as a group. And that's why the New Testament is so concerned with this issue, because it was a big deal and it was a big problem. And the reason it all comes to a head here in Acts 15 is that it was at this point in the timeline of the church's expansion that they're finally forced to deal with the theological and the practical issues that came with the gospel that was spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to metropolitan multicultural Antioch and then to the ends of the earth. When we first read Acts 1-8 and we heard about the gospel spreading to all of those different areas, we thought that maybe the barrier was purely geographical. You just had to get the gospel there. But now we're starting to see that there are theological snares. There are practical walls that are going to have to be navigated and broken down if the gospel is going to reach the ends of the earth and not just stall out in Jerusalem. Remember, it was for the first seven chapters of Acts, there was no real issue about who was a part of the church because most of the church was made up of Ashers and their families. If there were Gentiles in the gathering of Jesus followers, they were probably God-fearing Greeks who had already adopted a lot of Jewish, the Jewish lifestyle, or at least they understood it and they respected it. There was never any pork at potluck. And, and probably all of the leaders were circumcised, so that wasn't an issue. But after the martyrdom of Stephen and the following persecution that forced the church to spread, the good news of Jesus starts going to all these unlikely places. Philip is a, is a main catalyst. Philip, you remember, he takes the gospel and he preaches Jesus as Savior amongst the Samaritans, who were half Jewish and enemies of the Jews often. And then Peter and John show up, and these new believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Philip is taken by the Holy Spirit down to the middle of the desert, and he preaches the gospel to an Ethiopian without the specific approval of, of Peter or John. And then it's Peter himself, after arguing, you remember, with Jesus in a vision, uh, which is only you know, such a Peter thing to do. Uh, he argues with Jesus in this vision when Jesus had declared all foods and all people clean. And then you remember that Peter goes and, and he, he preaches the gospel in Cornelius' home. Even in that event, though, the church starts to push back on Peter they, they come and they, they say this isn't right, but they find it hard to argue with this vision that he's had and also with the fact that the Spirit had, felt, had fallen on them just as it had on the day of Pentecost. After this, in, it, things start to open up even more. In Acts 11.20, there's, there's some unnamed believers in Antioch who start telling people like our hypothetical friend Alex on the streets of Antioch, they start talking about forgiveness in Jesus' name and Gentiles start to believe. And suddenly things start to get a little interesting. You might imagine the, the early church as a block party in your neighborhood. <clears throat> and early on, everyone who's coming is from the street that you live on. You, you know them all by name. You know what house they live in. But then there's some people from a block over that, that start to show up because their kids saw your inflatable slide and they smelled all your burgers cooking. And so they start to, to come over because this seems interesting. We want to be a part of this. And you kind of know their faces, so you, it's, it's okay. But then you notice that, that people start calling their friends and inviting them to come to the block party. And then there's this guy who gets on Facebook Live 
And he tells everyone in the city your address. And suddenly, after just a few hours, the, the party seems to be getting a little bit out of hand. And you're not sure about all these people that are showing up. I think we could say that Paul and Barnabas are the guys at the block party who went on Facebook Live and created a little bit of a mess. Because nothing compared to what happened when Paul and Barnabas went on this first missionary journey. They, they always began going to the synagogue first and telling their Jewish brothers and sisters that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also had no problem going to the Gentiles, and they had no problem going to a city that had no synagogue. And because of that, what had been this small group of Gentile believers started to grow. And by Acts 15, we can assume that their number possibly outnumbered the, the Jewish Christians in some areas, and maybe in all areas combined, that there were now more Gentile Christians, or at least that was the threat, that there could be more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. The believers in Jerusalem started to feel like, like hipsters whose favorite indie band had gone mainstream, and now everyone knew about them. And they, they still loved Jesus, but they sort of missed the days when things weren't so complicated. They missed the days when things weren't so diverse, when everyone was like them. Gentile Jesus followers were no longer a novelty. The church was truly becoming God's people gathered from all nations. And so now we got to call a family meeting because we got to figure some things out. We got to hash out what this all means for the doctrine of salvation and also for the practices of the early church. This happened also, it started in, 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 um, in Antioch. We read about it in Galatians 1 and 2, that there's some tension that leads to Acts 15. As best I understand the timeline, Paul and Barnabas are encouraged by the Jerusalem church before they go on their first missionary journey to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It was an approved mission due in large part to the fact that Paul was called by Jesus as the apostle to the Gentiles, and probably because the people in Jerusalem thought, well, he's probably going to go to the synagogue and we're going to see a lot of Jewish people come to faith. But whether it was approved or not, when they came back and they spent some time in Antioch, a situation arose because Peter, who had been hanging out with the Gentile Christians just fine, started to pull away from them because some men from James showed up. And these guys, possibly the same ones that we find in Acts 15.1, were said to be spying out their freedom. And the pressure from these men claiming to be from James was so strong that even Barnabas, who had been on the first missionary journey, is drawn away into their hypocrisy. And this wall starts to go up between the, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And we start to wonder, is this what's going to happen? But Paul, Paul by God's grace, holds the line. And we can thank God for Paul because because he kept things from completely disintegrating. And he did it by confronting Peter to his face. And he said that this problem is not a social problem. This is a gospel issue. We got to deal with this. And because it was a gospel issue, they needed to have a church council. So everyone goes to Jerusalem. In fact, it may be, uh, John Stott hypothesized that, that it could be that Paul wrote the book of Galatians on his way to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council because that's when all this stuff was blowing up and because he doesn't mention the Jerusalem council in that letter. So now all that sort of background brings us back to Acts 15 and back to the council and hopefully have a better grasp of why this is so important. If you were with us last week, 
you saw how encouraging it was the way that the church dealt with that they, they addressed this theological question about the gospel and the practical questions about Jewish and Gentile believers being united as brothers and sisters in Christ. And they did it in this peaceful and wise way. But now in the time left, I want us to think about how they dealt with the theological issue. And then next week, we're going to think about the practical instructions that are given by James in this letter and also sort of the, the aftermath of this in, in the rest of the chapter. But for now, let's think about the theological question. And the theological question is, is very plain. It's this, is obedience to the law necessary for salvation? Is obedience to the law necessary for salvation? Do you have to keep the law in order to be saved? We know that that's the question because that's what people were seeing. Acts 15.1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's pretty cut and dry, right? If you're not circumcised according to the law, you cannot be saved. And then Acts 15.5, some of the believers, this is when they finally get to Jerusalem, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary. It's not optional. It's necessary to circumcise them. Who's the them? The Gentile Christians. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, what is required to be forgiven? Is faith in Jesus all that is necessary for salvation or are there laws that we need to obey? These are massive, eternally important questions. And after this general discussion that we find in verse six, Peter is the first to speak up. And this is what Peter shares. He says, this is what God had, he, Peter shares what God had done in the past. So Peter's the first speaker, and he, this is what he says, this is what, what God had done in the past. And Peter talks about what God had done, not just in the past, but in the recent past. He reminds them of how God, through a vision, had chosen him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And when he obeyed that vision, he obeyed the risen Jesus, and he told the the Gentiles of Cornelius' household, the word of the gospel, they believed, and what happened? Verse eight tells us what happened. Peter describes it like this. And God, who knows the heart, so God knows what they believe, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, which, is what, which was God's evidence that their hearts had been truly cleansed and their hearts had been cleansed, how? By faith. Faith in Jesus was what brought salvation, not circumcision, not obedience to the law. In fact, Peter gives everyone there a reality check on the law. Maybe the Pharisees didn't want to be honest about their failure to keep the law, but Peter knew the weakness of his own heart, and he calls the law, he calls the law a yoke, a burden that no one had been able to bear. He announces that the law, while good, acts in a way to reveal our inability to keep it. The high standards of the law show that we are unable to meet God's high standards, even apart from from thinking about the heart, the heart of obedience that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, that we're not just to keep the law, but to keep it in our, own, in our hearts. 
So Peter asks, why? Why in the world would we place a burden on these Gentile believers that we Jews have never been able to keep? No, he says, we are saved, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, through the grace of Jesus alone. That's what makes the good news good. It wouldn't be good news if they had to keep the law still because no one had been able to do it. Now, for each of us, it could be the Ten Commandments. It could be some other standard that we've come up with in our own, in our own minds. But we all naturally think that salvation comes at least in part through what we do or don't do. We all want to bear some yoke of salvation. We all want some burden of buying God's grace. We want to contribute our righteousness and our good works. But Peter tells us that none of us can bear that yoke. So hear this from your older brother Peter who had followed Jesus with his whole heart but then denied him at the crucial moment. Hear this, none of us can shoulder the burden of salvation through good works. There is no person that can be saved through their good works. So friends and brothers and sisters, let me remind you through the words of Peter that our hearts are cleansed by faith, not works. That the law does not earn our salvation, but it only reveals our inability to earn our salvation. That we are saved not by ourselves. We are saved by Jesus. Jesus who took the yoke of the law on his own neck and kept it perfectly. And Jesus who died the penalty, to pay the penalty for all of our law breaking. Well, if Peter shared what God had done in the past to show that law observance was not necessary for salvation, then Barnabas and Paul speak of what God was doing in the present. What God was doing in the present. That's Paul and Barnabas' um, contribution to the discussion. Luke doesn't go into detail about what Paul and Barnabas shared because he just did that in chapters 13 and 14. Last week I said I'd like to be a fly on the wall in that council, especially for that part. I think I am because I think Chapters 13 and 14 are probably what Paul and Barnabas shared. The key is that, that they tell everyone listening that what God had done amongst them in Jerusalem and what God had done through the hands of Peter in Cornelius' house, he was also doing throughout Galatia. Signs and wonders were accompanying these men as they told of God's grace and people, Jew and Gentile alike, were receiving the Holy Spirit through faith not through circumcision, not through law-keeping. You know, it's amazing to think about how much of the Old Testament is centered in the land of Israel. Do you ever think about that? Almost everything happens in this small plot of land in the world, in Israel. And if it's not happening in Israel, it's all about trying to get back to Israel. But think about this. Here we find things slowly moving away from Israel. I don't know of any other parts of, of the Bible that take place in Galatia. But now we're starting to hear about things happening in Galatia. And there's, there is, is no thought that, that the new believers in Lystra or the new believers in Derby or the new believers on the island of Cyprus need to get back to Jerusalem, that they need to go to the temple because the presence of God in the spirit of God is in and among them by faith that God's good news and his Holy Spirit are spreading and they're spreading away from Israel. So Peter's testimony about Cornelius wasn't a novelty. It wasn't just a one-time thing. Rather, Paul and Barnabas testified to the council that this is how God is continuing to work. We better come to grips with this. 
God is going to work in this way. He's not sticking around Jerusalem. He's not staying here. It's going all over the place. And everywhere it goes, people are coming to faith and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And that's how God is still working. That's how the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth because there is no region, there is no nation, there is no people group where the gospel can't go and bear fruit. The gospel grows wherever it is planted. And it doesn't grow because we preach a gospel of law keeping. It grows because we preach a gospel of faith. Well, finally, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader in the church in Jerusalem, speaks. And part of what he says, we'll look about more about what he says later on, but what he talks about is what God has said he would do. What God has said he would do. Experience, experiences that we have, evidences of the work of the Spirit are vital and they are important but the scriptures are the final and clearest authority. And so, after hearing testimony from Peter and from Paul and Barnabas, if James speaks up and he goes back to the scriptures and he's able to show that the actions of Peter and Paul, that that they were wrong according to the scriptures, then we reject them no matter what evidence we have from their experiences. If those aren't true, then new believers need to become Jewish in some way. But James quotes from Amos 9, 11, and 12, and he shows that God has always desired to call Gentiles into the salvation found through the Messiah of David's line, and that he was calling these Gentiles as his people, just as he had called the Jews. The striking phrase from the quotation in verse 17 is this, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That's the key phrase. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. In his commentary, F.F. Bruce talks about how the words people and Gentiles or nations always stand in contrast to one another in the Old Testament. They they are opposites. So here's Deuteronomy 14.2. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the people, out of all the nations who are on the face of the earth. So you're taken out of the nations to be my people. But, F.F. Bruce says, when James uses the same two terms here, he does not speak of God's taking a people in contrast to the Gentiles, but of his taking a people consisting of Gentiles. God is now taking a people, and they're not Jewish And that had always been in contrast in the Old Testament, but now God is taking a people and they are not Jewish, they are Gentiles. You can look at 1 Peter 2.9 and Titus 2.14 and see that as well. So the scriptures here, James is saying, are showing us that this is not something to be rejected, but that this is the fulfillment of God's plan from eternity past. It's the fulfillment of his word. I think we should also say that Peter and Paul were not acting contrary to the words of God in their actions and they weren't basing their conclusions purely on their own experience because they are responding to God's word. God's word given to them through the mouth of Jesus. What was Peter doing? Peter was obeying the vision given to him by Christ and Paul was fulfilling the mission that that it was given to him by the risen Jesus. But here we find that even the Old Testament which was being used to, to argue that Gentile, that, that you need to have the Gentiles become Jewish in order to gain salvation. Even that spoke 
of the salvation of the Gentiles. Paul, later on in Romans 4, gives what I think is the final word on circumcision when he reminds us that Abraham, to whom the, the promise, uh, the, to whom the practice of circumcision was first commanded, that he was saved before he was circumcised. He was called by God while he was still a pagan in Ur, and he was, he was given the promise of blessing and salvation before he was ever circumcised. Abraham, the great father of our faith, was counted righteous, not because of what he did, but through faith. Abraham believed God, and that, that belief, that faith was what counted, was counted to him as righteousness. And so we are Abraham's children, not because of physical birth, not because of custom or obedience to some law. We are Abraham's children through faith. So James agrees. He says in verse 19 that they should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. What a great phrase. They should not trouble or burden them with circumcision or law-keeping. Of course, if those things were necessary for salvation, then they would not be troubling. They would be life-giving. But since we are saved by the grace of Jesus through faith, adding the law to that message adds trouble to good news. And if you add trouble to good news, it's no longer good news. So here's how we can summarize how the Jerusalem Council decided on the theological issue of whether or not law-keeping was necessary for salvation. Here's what Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James had to say on it. They say this, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. That's how I would summarize their decision on the theological issue. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. I freely acknowledge that I have lifted that from church history, especially from the Reformation of the 1500s. But it's the same thing that the Jerusalem Council is affirming here in the first century. This has always been the truth of salvation. They affirm this truth by talking about what God had already done in the past, about what he was presently doing among them, and what God had always said he would do in the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that's been passed down to us because of faithful brothers and sisters through the ages who would not let the good news become a burden. We have this good news because of faithful brothers and sisters like the folks here in this council who refused to trouble believers with unnecessary laws and rules. We have this because guys like our hypothetical Asher laid aside things that they had practiced for so many years and, and struggled to, to coincide with, with this idea of Jesus being the Savior. They laid that aside and said, no, that's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it has nothing to do with the works of any law. So that's what we announce. That's what we proclaim as a church. And that's why it's good news. Because it's God's grace that saves us. And it's the faith that he gives us that saves us. And it only happens because of what Christ has done. And there are no works that any of us can add to this. Think about this for a minute. Our spiritual parents didn't pass down to us a law code. They passed down to us the Lord's Supper. Would you rather have a law code or the Lord's Supper? <laughs> 
This is what Jesus instructed them to do. He didn't instruct them to pass down some sort of list of things that we needed to do to be saved. He said, you know what? I want you to always take this meal so that you can remember what I've done for you. It's not a meal that we take to earn our salvation. It's a meal that we take to remember what Christ did to give us this salvation that we could never earn. It's a meal that we take to reignite our love for Christ, our desire to walk in his ways, not as a means of gaining merit, but as an expression of our love for him, our joy in him. It's a meal, and we'll think about this more next week, it's a meal that we take all together, every single one of us proclaiming our unity is not ethnic, it's not nationalistic, it's not racial. Our unity is our common faith in Jesus who has made us members of his family through faith. And as we take this meal freely given to all who are God's children, we announce that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. And that is not a burden, is it? And it's not trouble. It's good news.